High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember this is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Start learning about topics ranging from history to science and many more. Try it for free by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash remember. And by Club W, the world's only personalized wine club. Get $20 off your first order at clubw.com slash remember. You must remember A kiss is just a kiss A kiss of a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from inspecting read the and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Today, we're going to examine an effort by a major star to bring an end to the blacklist by hiring a member of the Hollywood 10 to write a high-profile, controversial movie. This episode has everything. Gangsters, politicians, possible hookers, the rise of JFK, the formation of the Rat Pack, and why Frank Sinatra never called it that. And, of course, it's the story of a writer who had been denied work due to his political beliefs, and a political climate in which a movie and singing star could have the appearance of being beholden to no one. Until a few days' worth of bad press made him toxic enough that his relationship to power suddenly seemed extremely precarious. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist story of Frank Sinatra and Albert Maltz. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, 
the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. I've been telling you about The Great Courses Plus for a while now. Many of you have already signed up for this great video learning service, and you now have unlimited access to over 7,000 fascinating video lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for The Great Courses Plus yet, now's the perfect time, because we have a special offer. With The Great Courses Plus, you can learn about anything and everything, anything that interests you history, science, or even how to cook, play chess, or speak Spanish. You can watch these engaging online video lectures anytime, anywhere, using your TV, laptop, tablet, or smartphone. One of their fascinating courses is called Turning Points of Modern History, which, over the course of 24 lectures, spans the 1400s all the way up until, like, yesterday, tackling subjects like Gutenberg's print revolution, the French Revolution, the opium wars in China, the invention of movies, the dawn of the atom, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Just like our podcast tries to do, this course will help give you a context for how certain historical events are related, like how the space program grew out of developments made during World War II and advanced rapidly during the Cold War out of paranoia, which resulted in the moon landing in 1969, and so on. You'll love The Great Courses Plus, so sign up today, and as one of my podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Whether it's the turning points of modern history, or one of their dozens of other courses that will help you learn a new language or hobby, or explore all kinds of history. To start your free trial today, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com remember. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com remember. HUAC's key active years, as far as ruining the lives of people who worked in movies, were roughly 1947 to 1952. And this just about coincided with the nadir of Frank Sinatra's career. 
But although Sinatra had as much of a record of liberal activism as many of those called to testify or otherwise cast under suspicion in the media, Sinatra was never subpoenaed by HUAC. In the late 40s and early 1950s, he wouldn't have had much value to them. Now in his 30s, Sinatra's appeal with the teenage girls who had made him a star was waning. And as a singer, it took him a while to transition into an adult persona. Meanwhile, it seemed like his film career was all but over. He made just two films between 1949 and 1953, and by the end of 1951, MGM had dropped him. He divorced his longtime wife, Nancy, and after a scandalous affair that made them the top target of the newly international paparazzi, Sinatra had married Ava Gardner. Her career was riding high while his was swinging low, adding fuel to the fire of their already volatile union. Everything began to change in the spring of 1954, when Sinatra won an Oscar for From Here to Eternity. By then, he and Ava were separated, and Sinatra would spend the next decade embodying the mid-century American ideal of the middle-aged swinger. High on this rush of comeback glory, one night in early November 1954, Sinatra was dining at one of his favorite spots, Villa Capri, with a group of friends. At some point, Frank and Joe DiMaggio disappeared from the restaurant table. They drove together to an apartment building in West Hollywood, where DiMaggio believed, thanks to intel from a private detective he had hired, that Marilyn Monroe, his estranged wife who was in the process of divorcing him, was trysting with another man. Sinatra and DiMaggio broke into the apartment in question and started flashing pictures. It took a minute before they realized that the woman in bed was alone, and she was not Marilyn, but a stranger to them named Florence Cotts. Sinatra thought the mix-up was hilarious, and DiMaggio didn't. In fact, the baseball star would refuse to speak to the singer after this incident, which became known as the Wrong Door Raid. Actually, it wasn't known to anyone until Confidential Magazine reported on it almost a year later. A year and a half after that, Sinatra was subpoenaed to testify on the matter, first to a California State Senate committee and then to a Los Angeles County grand jury. Sinatra's testimony before the Senate committee was flippant and sarcastic, the very definition of contempt. And worse, it contradicted in every way the testimony of Phil Irwin, a 24-year-old who had formerly worked for DiMaggio's private detective. A few months later, when asked before the grand jury to explain the discrepancies between his story and Irwin's, Sinatra said, Who are you going to believe, me or a guy who makes his living kicking down bedroom doors? Nothing much happened as a result of these investigations. Sinatra's legal team, which included both Hollywood and Chicago mob lawyers, made sure of that. And that in itself might have given Sinatra false confidence. Clearly, he had become powerful enough that there were people who wanted to take him down. But he may have believed that he had become so powerful that he could survive anything. Sinatra's power stemmed in part from the fact that the entertainment business was changing. Like many highly paid stars, Sinatra had formed a corporation in order to minimize his taxes. 
through this corporation, Sinatra now produced most of the movies he appeared in. By 1958, Sinatra's corporation was grossing $4 million a year from movies, records, and TV appearances. The one thing Sinatra didn't have in the mid-1950s was something he had always craved, political power. A diehard FDR supporter, Sinatra's concern for equality amongst the classes and the races had also driven him to support Henry Wallace, the VP and cabinet secretary who ran against Truman as a progressive candidate. Sinatra also campaigned for Adlai Stevenson and Truman, and he even offered himself to the FBI as a spy. Sinatra was rejected. A note in his FBI file read, We want nothing to do with him. By this time, J. Edgar Hoover was concerned that Sinatra could be a tool of the Communist Party, a figurehead that would allow the Reds to gain influence on the American people through the mass hysteria of celebrity worship. Sinatra was surely aware that the FBI had some kind of suspicions about him as early as 1954, when Frank applied to entertain troops in Korea, and the army turned him down on the grounds that, quote, serious questions existed as to Mr. Sinatra's sympathies with respect to communism, communists, and fellow travelers. At a meeting with military officials, Sinatra insisted that he despised communism but he was not granted a security clearance to go to Korea. For the next few years, the FBI continued to tail Sinatra, keeping close tabs on his relationships with both known mobsters like Sam Giancana and the increasingly high-profile war hero-turned-democratic politician John F. Kennedy. In 1956, the star guests at the Democratic National Convention included Eleanor Roosevelt, Sinatra, and MGM chief Dory Sherry, who had cast the then-barely-known Kennedy to narrate a film to be unveiled at the convention on the history of the Democratic Party. When Kennedy was introduced to the crowd after the film screened, he got a massive ovation, and the New York Times likened him to a movie star. For Sinatra, Kennedy was more star-like than the politician's brother-in-law, Peter Lawford, an English actor whom Sinatra had been paired with at MGM and who would spend decades as one of Sinatra's most eager and least liked hangers-on. By the time Kennedy began moving in Sinatra's social circle, Frank already had established ties to organized crime. Always an admirer of the type of power gangsters wielded and the swagger with which they often wielded it, Sinatra had officially gotten into business with the mob in 1954 when Jewish gangster Joseph Doc Stacker had loaned him $54,000 to buy a share of the Sands Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. By 1958, when Sinatra began establishing stronger relationships with the Kennedy family, Sinatra owned nearly 10% of the casino, ownership of which was otherwise shared amongst a syndicate of gangsters and their fronts. And Sinatra had an exclusive contract to perform there. He was also close enough to Chicago boss Sam Giancana that the boss wore a sapphire pinky ring given to him by Sinatra. At the same time that Frank was vacationing with Kennedy Patriarch Joe one weekend and jetting off to Giancana's daughter's Miami wedding the next, 
John and Bobby Kennedy were pegging their political careers to a Senate investigation into racketeering. That Senate committee would subpoena Giancana in March 1959. Process servers had been after him for a year, narrowly missing Giancana in a number of locations, including a visit he made to the set of the Sinatra-starring film, Some Came Running. JFK took other political stances that Sinatra should have found unappealing or inconvenient. Sinatra had made no bones about his support for civil rights, and despite his stated hatred for communists, he had supported the Hollywood Ten's right to keep their politics private. JFK had voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1957, and he and his whole family were close friends with Joseph McCarthy. When the Senate censured McCarthy in 1954, JFK was the only Democrat who didn't vote against McCarthy. He didn't vote at all. He was recovering from back surgery at the time, and he released no comment as to how he would have voted. But Sinatra couldn't see the differences between his beliefs and JFK's politicking. The singer and movie star, then the most famous man working in Hollywood, was himself too starstruck. And despite the potential liabilities Sinatra represented, JFK cultivated their friendship because he, too, coveted what the other man had. Namely, access to the world of celebrity and a certain type of on-demand sex that came with it. At the beginning of 1960, Kennedy officially announced his run for the presidency. A few days later, Sinatra, Lawford, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. took up residency in Las Vegas, where they would spend a couple of months shooting the movie Ocean's Eleven. Sinatra had developed the film about a crew of World War II veterans who team up to rob a casino with Lawford. At this point in his career, Sinatra was so powerful that no one told him what to do or how to do it, and the buddies he had cast in the film only took orders from Sinatra. Ocean's Eleven director Lewis Milestone thus found himself trying to shoot a picture in between the erratic schedules of a crew of professional bachelors. When he needed a second take, Milestone would appeal to Sinatra to help him corral the boys to do it again. Usually, instead of agreeing to shoot again, Sinatra would suggest Milestone print the first take twice. Sinatra hated the term Rat Pack, which had been coined by Lauren Bacall to refer to her husband Humphrey Bogart and his drinking buddies, of which Sinatra had been one. Sinatra was always aspirational, even when there was hardly anything left for him to aspire to, and he didn't want anyone to look at him and think of rats. He preferred to call the group of men he had assembled in Vegas the Summit, after the planned summit between Eisenhower and Khrushchev that was in the news, or the Klan, with a C. This group's life as a pop culture entity began during the shooting of Ocean's Eleven, although the movie had little to do with it. While in town, Sinatra, Martin, and Davis all booked solo nighttime gigs at the Sands. These gigs usually involved about an hour of entertainment with a strict out time so that the audience members wouldn't have an excuse to stray from the gambling tables for too long. But on Sammy Davis's first night on stage, he started to run over the desired running time. Sinatra knew how to appease casino management better than anyone, so he decided to help his friend out. 
Without warning, Frank appeared on stage and started bantering with Sammy. Soon enough, Frank announced to the crowd, He's gotta go to bed. We're doing a movie all day. Sammy, say goodnight. Sammy said goodnight, and the two men walked off stage together, hand in hand. This kind of thing never happened. One headliner spontaneously interrupting another headliner's act in order to end it. And then it happened again. The next night, Sinatra was on stage singing, and Dean Martin interrupted him in full drunk act, saying, Frank, that's enough. Frank, that song's too long. Sing something shorter. Every time this happened, the crowd went nuts, in part because they felt like they were witnessing something happening between stars that was unplanned and that they shouldn't see. And word started to spread, first around Vegas and then back in LA, that something hilarious was happening at the Sands. Celebrities started flying up from Hollywood in droves to see the show. And then the boys on stage would call out their names. Marilyn Monroe is here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. If it isn't Gregory Peck, sit in stage left. And then they'd become a de facto part of the show. And this generated more headlines. In the midst of this moment, Sinatra flew back to LA to record a version of the hit High Hopes for JFK's campaign. Everyone is voting for Jack Cause he's got what all the rest lack Everyone wants to back Jack Jack is on the right track Cause he's got high hopes He's got Over the next few weeks, JFK visited Vegas twice, attending the show at the Sands on both trips. Sinatra would regularly introduce him from the stage as the next president of the United States. After one of these shows, Sinatra introduced Kennedy to a woman named Judith Campbell Exner, who Sinatra himself had recently had an affair with, and who, according to some accounts, was maybe a prostitute, or was at least accustomed to accepting cash, gifts, and luxury travel arrangements from the men in her life. Judith Campbell Exner and John F. Kennedy would that night begin an affair that would last the rest of his life. According to Exner, she then became a go-between, delivering messages back and forth between Kennedy and Giancana, who JFK told her was, quote, working for us. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You would think that by now, Sinatra was woven in so tightly into JFK's sphere of influence that nothing could unweave him. But if Sinatra believed that, he managed to find the one thing he could do that would threaten his proximity to the soon-to-be leader of the free world. On March 21, 1960, Sinatra announced that he was planning to make his directorial debut, 
he had hired Albert Maltz to write the screenplay adaptation of The Execution of Private Slovik, a book about the only World War II soldier given the death penalty for desertion. This was potentially incendiary material, and Maltz was at least an unexpected choice for a writer. Maltz hadn't worked in Hollywood for over a decade, because as a member of the Hollywood Ten, he had been blacklisted. After registering with the Communist Party in 1935, Maltz had won the O. Henry Award in 1938 for his short story, The Happiest Man on Earth. As a screenwriter under contract to Warner Brothers in the 1940s, he had been nominated for an Oscar for writing The Pride of the Marines, starring John Garfield in 1945. The following year, Maltz touched off a huge controversy amongst Hollywood communists when he published an essay titled What Should We Ask of Writers? in New Masses magazine. The essay essentially took issue with the party line that art was a weapon. Art, Maltz argued, could be used as an effective weapon, but communists shouldn't dismiss great art that didn't serve revolutionary purposes, and artists shouldn't feel forced to weaponize their work at the expense of artistic virtue. An outcry ensued, and a meeting of Hollywood communists was held to publicly shame Maltz for the essay. Under this pressure, Maltz published a second piece in New Masses, repudiating his original essay. Maltz insisted that nobody held a gun to his head and told him to write the second essay. He just still believed in communism and wanted to stay in the party, and he didn't want to be ostracized. If you go by the testimony of many who would testify to HUAC, confessing their own communist sins and pointing the finger at others, Maltz's second article in New Masses became a flashpoint for many Hollywood communists, who saw Maltz's turnabout on the issue of creative freedom as a chilling sign of the party's aggressive insistence on conformity. From the accounts I've read, it's hard to tell if Maltz's recantation, as it is often called, really inspired dozens of people to leave the party, or if it later became an easy thing to point to when Congress was asking you to describe in specific, finite terms a political evolution that might have been years in the making. In any case, a year after the new masses debacle, Maltz, like some of his harshest critics in the party, including Alva Bessie and John Howard Lawson, was subpoenaed by HUAC. Maltz, Lawson, Bessie, and the seven other members of the Hollywood Ten all went to prison for contempt of Congress. Maltz then moved to Mexico. He wrote the script for a Jimmy Stewart movie called Broken Arrow and sold it by asking his friend Michael Blankfort to put his name on it. The screenplay was nominated for an Oscar. Maltz also wrote a draft of The Robe, the widescreen Richard Burden epic, which was the highest-grossing movie of 1953. But Maltz was not given credit on that film for decades. Other than that, Maltz did not earn any kind of screen credit for the entirety of the 1950s and 1960s. He remained extremely hardline against the committee, ending friendships with anyone who cooperated to any extent with HUAC, including Blankfurt, who only said aloud the name of his brother and his wife in the context of saying he had no knowledge of their party affiliations. 
Even before Sinatra had been one of the celebrities who supported the Hollywood 10 against the HUAC Inquisition through the radio program Hollywood Fights Back. Hollywood Fights Back! Maltz and Sinatra had a history. Pre-Blacklist, in 1945, the writer had worked with Sinatra on The House I Live In, a short film preaching tolerance and implicitly tying the ideal of equality to the war effort by showing Sinatra scolding a group of kids for bullying a Jew. Though the climate was much more friendly to this sort of thing while the war was in progress, and in fact The House I Live In was given a special honorary Oscar, the short film had given the right-wing press another excuse to rail against Sinatra as a bad influence on American youth. It also added weight to Sinatra's FBI file, which, mob ties aside, was dedicated to tracking his supposed un-Americanism. Obviously, the 1950s were not a great time, in Hollywood or America or anywhere, to be an old-school FDR-style liberal, as Sinatra considered himself to be. But by 1960, he may have felt he had reason to believe that the time was right for a bold move, and that he, the chairman of the board and the most powerful star around, was the person to make it. According to Maltz, Sinatra had been wanting to hire Maltz for a long time, and he had been waiting for the right moment. He believed this was it. By this point, other producers were cautiously trying to openly hire blacklisted writers. We'll get into this more next week, but Sinatra was inspired by Otto Preminger, his director on The Man with the Golden Arm, who had declared he was hiring Dalton Trumbo to write Exodus. Meanwhile, the Academy had quietly rescinded its ban on blacklisted writers earning nominations, which had resulted in several screenplay writing awards going to people who either didn't exist or whom everyone knew didn't actually write the movie in question. These were big stories in the company town of Hollywood, but Sinatra's deal with Maltz attracted an enormous amount of national attention because it was Sinatra. Sensing that the announcement would be incendiary, Sinatra's lawyer had advised that he and Maltz hold it until after the New Hampshire primary so as to not distract from Kennedy's campaign. When Kennedy won that primary, Maltz called Sinatra and directly asked him if he wanted to delay announcing their partnership in case his association with a blacklisted writer made it difficult for him to raise money for JFK. Sinatra said, No, I support Kennedy because I think he's the best man for the job, but I'm not doing anything special for him. Maltz told him that he felt the announcement would have a significant impact on helping to end the blacklist, and Sinatra agreed they should do it right away. When the announcement was made, its significance was apparent to everyone. This was the first time a star had openly announced his intention to defy the blacklist. And it was not just any star, but the biggest star. The New York Times predicted that since Sinatra was by no means the only star-slash-producer in town with the power to hire his own writer, if this experiment worked, it may start a trend which would, in essence, end the blacklist. Adding to the potential impact was the fact that Sinatra was his own boss. He had his own record label, he produced his own movies, and he had just left William Morris and set up his own agency. He didn't need any of the people who could have told him no. 
But he was still subject to bad publicity. And it took all of a couple of days for right-wing Hollywood and the media they were in league with to start a firestorm of that. Ward Bond warned that the industry could be taken over by the Hire the Commies Club, which was such an exaggeration that it was sort of hilarious. But nobody was laughing when John Wayne connected the dots in Sinatra's life, saying, I wonder how Sinatra's crony, Senator John Kennedy, feels about him hiring such a man. I'd like to know his attitude, because he's the one who's making plans to run the administrative government of our country. The Hearst Syndicate published editorials calling Maltz an unrepentant enemy of his country. One New York newspaper reported that the Maltz hiring by Sinatra had prompted the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee to plan to send investigators to Hollywood to gather information for a new round of hearings. Hedda Hopper claimed she had received over a hundred letters in a matter of days, protesting Sinatra's decision to hire Maltz. She also raised the specter of how Frank's support of quote-unquote commie Albert Maltz might impact Kennedy's run for the presidency. If Sinatra loves his country, Hopper wrote, he won't do this. She suggested that if he went forward and allowed Maltz to write the film, unhappy Americans should show their displeasure by boycotting not just private Slovak, but all Sinatra products going forward. The Catholic war veterans also threatened to boycott Slovitz and asked Sinatra, quote, to reconsider and hire a true American. Sinatra did not. The American veterans of foreign wars took it one step further, calling for a total boycott of Sinatra himself. Sinatra remained unmoved. General Motors threatened to pull their sponsorship from an upcoming Sinatra TV special. Fuck em. Sinatra said. Then Sinatra fought back. He bought full-page ads in the New York Times and the Hollywood Trades, insisting that the film, as written by Maltz, would be, quote, an affirmative declaration in the best American tradition. And he asked that his critics reserve judgment until they had seen the movie. But then he got to the real heart of the matter. The right-wing attacks on Sinatra had often included jabs at Kennedy for being in bed with a star who was either himself a communist or at least in league with them. In Sinatra's newspaper ads, he forcefully drew a line between his activities as an entertainer and Kennedy's campaign. This type of partisan politics is heading below the belt, Sinatra wrote. I make movies. I do not ask the advice of Senator Kennedy on whom I should hire. Senator Kennedy does not ask me how he should vote in the Senate. The ad concluded with a promise from Sinatra. I am prepared to stand on my principles and to await the verdict of the American people when they see the execution of Private Slovak. But the American people would never see Sinatra's Private Slovak, and Maltz would never write it. Sinatra would pay Maltz off at $75,000 and abandoned the project. What happened? That depends on who's doing the remembering. I have very specific taste in wine. I like red wines, usually from Italy or France, 
that are the opposite of fruit forward. I usually tell bartenders and sommeliers to give me a taste of whatever they have that tastes the most like dirt. What often happens is that I taste a couple of things, don't like any of them, and then end up ordering something I'm not happy with. And when I try the tastes like dirt line in wine stores, the employees, usually men, usually roll their eyes or otherwise condescend to me, and then I get defensive, like, sorry I don't like California Pinot Noir. So I'm super excited about Club W, which adds technological innovation to the wine selection process. Club W is an online wine club that gives you wine recommendations based on what you like to eat and drink. They have a simple six-question palette quiz that asks you questions like, how do you take your coffee? Or, do you like berries? Club W then matches you to wine that you are guaranteed to love because it's tailored to your unique tastes. Right now, Club W is offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash remember. And it gets even better. No one likes to pay for shipping, so Club W will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So get stocked up for your next dinner party or girls' night in and have a conversation piece to go with it. Just go to clubw.com slash remember to get $20 off your first order now. That's clubw.com slash remember. Peter Lawford claimed that Cardinal Spellman of New York advised Joe Kennedy that the Sinatra malt steel reflected badly on Kennedy's connection to Frank. According to Lawford, his father then called Frank and said, It's either malts or us. Make up your mind. And Frank chose the Kennedys. Tina Sinatra, Frank's daughter, took personal credit for the death of Slovak. She had been in the fifth grade at the time, and at her Los Angeles private school, another little girl went up to her and said, My dad says your dad's a communist. Does that mean you're a communist? Tina went home in tears, and her mother got her father on the phone. When Tina told Frank what had happened, he was able to see the situation in a way he hadn't before. I'm sorry that this happened, Pigeon, Frank told his daughter. The whole thing is very complicated, but I'm telling you that I am not a communist, and neither are you. Don't cry, please. I'll take care of it. And he did. Sinatra issued a statement a few days later. In view of the reaction of my family, friends, and the American public, I've instructed my lawyers to make a settlement with Albert Maltz. My conversations with Maltz indicate that he has an affirmative, pro-American approach to the story. But the American public has indicated it feels that the morality of hiring Maltz is the most crucial matter. And I will accept this majority opinion. The fact that Sinatra referenced his family in the statement gives credence to Tina's account. And certainly, it seems like Sinatra chose to believe that he was making a sacrifice for the good of those close to him, which meant JFK as much as Tina. But I wouldn't totally discount the power of the threat of boycotts. After all, Sinatra had pretty recently known what it was like to not sell records and not be able to get a movie made. He had been pretty much totally washed up, and he hadn't liked it one bit. 
As much as his persona was based on not giving a shit, on doing whatever he wanted regardless of the consequences, what he really wanted was to be able to keep that life without there being consequences. As far as the public was concerned, it was all over. Frank went back to campaigning for Kennedy, and of course, Kennedy won. But Maltz wouldn't openly write a movie until 1970, and Frank was privately devastated. The weekend he decided that he had to settle with Maltz rather than make the movie, he binged on Jack Daniels for three days and tore apart his home office, vowing to get out of the movie business. Two months later, he ran into John Wayne at a costume party, and remembering what Wayne had been quoted as saying about him and Maltz, Sinatra shoved the Duke, and the Duke shoved him back. And ultimately, Sinatra would come to see that his sacrifice in order to remain in the company of the Kennedys was for nothing. In 1961, Sinatra produced and headlined the inaugural ball. But once installed in the machine of the presidency, JFK proved to be a fair-weather friend. A year later, he had been scheduled to spend a weekend at Sinatra's place in Palm Springs, when Bobby Kennedy canceled at the last minute, believing that Sinatra, the noted friend and business partner of Italian gangsters, was too toxic. JFK stayed at Bing Crosby's house instead, and Sinatra went ballistic. Whether he knew about JFK's own ties to Italian gangsters or not, this was a major moment of disillusion for Sinatra. And it may have been the first drop in the bucket that would eventually lead him to switch allegiances from the Democratic to Republican parties. But that's a story for another day. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our editor is Henry Malofsky. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anybody you can, any way that you can. Subscribing on iTunes helps people find the show, as does rating and reviewing it there. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and you can find the show on Facebook and Instagram, too. We'll be back next week with the final episode in our Blacklist series. Join us then, won't you? Good night. How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, quote, 